0: Welcome to episode 810 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at baseballreference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. So, we're doing some emails today. Anything you want to talk about before we get there? All right, then let me start with a question from Corey in Franklin, Tennessee, and his email was subject lined Howie. And the question was, so does this mean that Howie Kendrick's agent is really bad? And by this, he means Howie Kendrick's contract, which is with the Dodgers for two years and $20 million guaranteed. So does that mean that his agent is really bad? And he turned down a qualifying offer, by the way. So he rejected a one-year, $15.8 million contract and ended up signing two in 20.
1: Well, so there's two questions, I guess, uh, or two, two, two questions that you might ask about his agent. One is if this contract is a bad contract. The other is whether the qualifying offer should have been accepted knowing that this was going to be the contract. And, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a little light, for sure, to answer the first question. A little lighter than people. What did, what did do we know what uh, Bowden suggested he would get?
0: <laughs> I can find out. He predicted 3 and 45.
1: 3 and 45. So, um, so you know, clearly that's a, a lot lower. Yeah. I think that it's it's not absurdly low. I think it's somewhat low, but you sometimes you get to this point in the off season and you have to take a lower deal. I mean, I don't think that you can necessarily say that it was a bad decision to take this deal because there's no guarantee, especially this late in the season, in the off season, that there's anything better uh, coming down the line. There might have been something better before, but uh, it's hard to know how much you should. How well? Whether it was smart to kind of gamble on something, if you if you're you're never going to necessarily know that you're going to get the best offer that is possible, and you might have to turn down deals speculatively, and then you might get stuck with something worse. I mean, it sucks for Howie because he's only one guy. Uh, I think you can definitely argue that Howie Kendrick gets less than he probably uh, is worth, but an agent is has got you know is going to make. Dozens of of deals in his career. It's hard to judge him on one because if uh, he never has a mistake uh, like this or if he never gets uh, ends up with something less like this, he might not be being aggressive enough in pursuing the, uh, the promise of a bigger deal somewhere down the line. I think also for this to look like a really super sweet deal, uh, you have to believe that Howie Kendrick has defensive value. And that's not a, a completely consensus viewpoint. I think that there were people uh, who thought that his people within the angels who thought that his defense was uh, on a downward slope, even before he left the angels. Uh, and then it uh, plummeted according to, uh, at least according to defensive run saved, it plummeted in his first year with the Dodgers. And uh, you wouldn't expect it to, uh, to, to go up. He also you know missed time for the second time in three years. He's a 32 year old second baseman and we know they don't age that well. Uh, he's, not a super athletic guy. Uh, And you could kind of imagine that he's not necessarily going to be a, well, not just that he's not going to be a good second baseman going forward, but that he could be a very bad second baseman going forward. Um, And there's not a lot of places for a bad second baseman to go. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise, like I, it seems low, but it wouldn't, it also wouldn't surprise me if at the end of two years, we looked back and went, Oh, so he was, he really was worth three wins over those two years. That seems like a, a not, Implausible. Let me see what we project him for. Uh, But that seems like a, you know, not a, it's not a, it's not a completely mind bogglingly low deal, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Is it in yours? We project him to be, we project him to be worth four wins over the next two years.
0: So, yeah. And right. So that would
1: be something like a, you'd expect like 30 million for that. Yeah.
0: He's a league average player almost exactly. I think according to just about every, projection system so if he's yeah if he's a two wins above replacement guy and you know wins are going for whatever they're going for seven or eight or something million then then yeah you would expect him to get on a two-year deal you'd expect him to get you know this this is like two thirds as big as the contract he should get by wins above replacement. so who else got a contract in this range?
1: By the way, this is he. He's the same age and plays the same position uh, that Omar Infante did um, when he hit free agency and signed with the Royals. Uh, and he also signed a deal that was much lower than his projected war uh, was going to be over that time period. And we thought that, that was a, a great bargain at the time, and we applauded the Royals for it. Um, and uh, you know, he's only one case. He didn't. He hasn't lived up to even that lower deal. Uh, but it was a it was something of a comparable deal. It was longer, but also for a fairly low average annual value. It was four years and thirty million dollars, um, and so based on that, maybe anecdotally, between those two, and maybe you can think of some others. I think that maybe uh, second baseman at that age, probably, I I feel like I, pro- I shouldn't say probably because I haven't looked, but anecdotally, I've kind of felt like those are players who. Uh, Get less than their projected war suggests Which maybe tells you that they're an undervalued resource Or maybe it tells you uh, that there's something in the positional adjustments Particularly for players at that age uh, When uh, movement on the defensive spectrum uh, Becomes a bit more common, a bit more necessary And for a second baseman, perhaps a bit more of a penalty Than at other positions uh, That teams just don't really quite buy um, the the projected wars for that kind of a player mm-hmm.
0: yeah well I mean it's a lot lower than I would have expected and I suppose then you would have expected because we both drafted jim Jim Bowden's predictions and he said 345 and neither of us took the under on that as something we wanted to bet on at the beginning of the season so it's a lot lower than I would have thought I didn't you know sit down and look at all the possible landing places for. A second baseman and and whether there was a market for him and maybe there wasn't really then again i mean if daniel murphy gets three years and 37 and a half which would you rather have they both had qualifying offers are they comparable are they close if you compare them
1: yeah i'd rather have kendrick i think i'd rather have i think i'd rather have kendrick but it's fairly close
0: yeah, and... the thing about
1: Murphy is that I could, I would rather have Murphy playing third, and I would rather have Howie Kendrick playing second. Uh-huh. And it seems more likely, uh, it seems maybe more likely that you're going to get Daniel Murphy playing third for the next three years, or for a lot of the next three years. And it seems more likely that you're going to have Howie Kendrick stuck at second for the
0: next two years. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so I don't. I think mm, I would probably. I would rather have probably Howie Kendrick, but it's close, and I'm not totally confident in that position.
0: Yeah, and the other deals in this range that were signed this offseason: Mike Pelfrey got two years and sixteen million. Astrubel Cabrera got two years and eighteen point five. Marco Estrada got two years and twenty six million. So, you know, I mean, if Murphy gets gets 37.5 and Astruble Cabrera gets essentially the same as Kendrick, I mean, I, I would rather have Kendrick than these players, probably. I think he probably deserves more money than those players. So I agree. the fact that he didn't get it, I don't know. Would I be pleased with my agent if I were Howie Kendrick and I got two years and 20 million? Probably not, except... I would know everything, so I would know whether there had been a bigger offer that had been rejected at some point, and obviously that's a big part of this. I guess you could say that if there never was a bigger offer than this, that might also be on the agent in a sense, that maybe he didn't agent enough. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't reach out to enough people. He didn't plug hard enough. He didn't go over the GM's head and talk to the owner or whatever it is that aggressive agents do to create markets for their client or public relations or you know whatever whatever it is you could maybe blame him for that offer not materializing. So
1: yeah, you know. I'm I think that I probably have maybe talked myself into thinking that this is closer to his market value than it is. Now that I think about it, if you'd asked me three months ago if you'd put all these contracts in front of me three months ago, and said which one do you want i probably take howie's over almost any free agent signed maybe over any free agent signed this yeah. offseason so that suggests that in fact i'm uh, that i'm underselling it it is a good deal it is a very good deal and uh, it isn't for enough team. for howie
0: yeah. kendrick yeah right so so then the question is when a player doesn't get as much as we think he should is that a sign that his agent is bad
1: his other by the way his other clients uh, howie kendrick's agent's other clients uh, include Tory Hunter, who did extremely well for himself uh, and pretty much always got more than we thought he should. Uh, Justin Upton, who I think did well for himself this offseason. Did fine. And uh, BJ Upton, who got that mm-hmm. big deal from the Braves five years ago. Mm-hmm. So there's not a uh, – and Latroy Hawkins is one. I don't have any idea whether Latroy Hawkins has been fairly compensated uh, in his <laughs> career. But there's, a, you know, there's not a – I wouldn't run the guy out of the game. Uh-huh. Yeah, based on this now. Okay. So as to the qualifying offer, uh, he was not one of the guys that I thought should have taken the qualifying offer. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's hard for me to, to, I guess, I guess it's hard for me to, to then knock him for that. So, uh, and I don't, I mean, again, like Daniel Murphy accepted the qualifying offer and it didn't seem to hurt him at all. Mm -hmm. Did Daniel Murphy get a qualifying offer? He did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And didn't seem to hurt him at all. Um, and, uh, so I guess, yeah, the, the, the crime is getting this deal after all take back everything I said I think that he was probably right to turn down the qualifying offer it's surprising that he signed for this low to me and uh, not a great deal and maybe not enough to say that his agent is to blame
0: mm-hmm. okay.
1: it's always hard to know you ask us these questions that involve <laughs> a lot of unknowns yeah and not only a lot of unknowns but sample sizes of one it's hard to to even necessarily draw conclusions for, I mean all sorts of things can happen that can depress a guy's value one time, especially once it gets to February. That's The the, the balance between signing early in the offseason and signing late seems to be the biggest challenge for teams. It's almost like if the player's equivalent of like using your best reliever in leverage. It, you want to use him in good leverage, but you don't know if there's a better leverage situation coming down the road, down the line in the same game. And so for the player, you don't want to get stuck in February, and you also don't want to get... Too uh, too aggressive because uh, sometimes the best deals come after you wait. It's hard mm-hmm. to say. Yeah,
0: very hard to say. Very hard to say. Very okay. hard.
1: Very difficult to say. Question: Joel from... Hanrahan was one of his clients. Do we have an opinion about Joel Hanrahan <laughs> and how he's been handled? <laughs> I Is do a, not. A client.
0: I bet he's a we, Should we guess Joel Hanrahan's sure. career earnings? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> okay, Joel Hanrahan. I'll go. I can't remember whether he got a closer contract. I'll say he has earned 17 million.
1: I'll say like 8.1. Okay. 13.8.
0: All right. That is almost the midpoint
1: between us. 13.8. And it's actually, he's probably earned more than that. He got 13.8 through 2013, and he Uh hasn't pitched since then. Uh, And so I don't see his contracts after that, but he might have actually gotten paid. Real money in twenty fourteen as well. I'm not sure.
0: Mm -hmm. All right, question from Robert. I might be the last person to realize this, but reigning National League MVP Bryce Harper is nine months younger than reigning National League Rookie of the Year Chris Bryant. This fun fact got me thinking: How often is a league is a league's Rookie of the Year been older than its MVP award recipient, and what has been the widest disparity between those two ages? So I looked this up with some help from BP's Rob McEwen, who just sent me a list of winners and ages. And this is not unprecedented. It isn't common, but it has happened 10 times in the past. So they've only been awarding a rookie of the year since 1947. So in that time, this is the 11th time that a MVP was younger than a Rookie of the Year in the same league in the same year. And on average, the MVP winner is a little more than five years older than the Rookie of the Year winner. The average Rookie of the Year is 23.3 and the average MVP is 28.5. And those ages make perfect sense. I think the biggest disparity between the age of one or the other one of the times was just a A couple years ago, Mike Trout was 22 when he won the AL MVP award and Jose Abreu was 27 when he won the AL Rookie of the Year award and the other time that there was a five-year gap between them and I didn't look to see whether it was slightly higher one year or the other, obviously it was, but the other time when there was a five-year gap was 1957 Hank Aaron was the NL MVP at age 23, and Jack Sanford was the NL Rookie of the Year at 28. (laughs) So, Harper being slightly older than Bryant is, or Bryant being slightly older than Harper is not really that unusual. Happens, I don't know, every several years. I wonder what Jack
1: Sanford's story was. I wonder if he, like, went to Korea. Jack Sanford...
0: Served in the U.S. Army in 1955 and then didn't pitch until September of 56. Yep. Died in 2000. Can't call him. Nope. All right. Question from question from Andrew. With the upcoming CBA negotiations, would it behoove the Players Union to try to hire Scott Boris to negotiate the new CBA for them? Why or why not? So Scott Boris often weighs in on CBS or CBA issues. And, you know, he complains about draft pick compensation for free agents routinely. He complains about other things that depress spending by owners. And obviously he has a motive. He wants to get his clients the most money, but that overlaps with the motive of most players, which is to make more money. And there are, Other considerations, but really it kind of just all comes down to money, (laughs) whether it's immediate earnings or whether it's pension or whether it's other forms of compensation, it's all compensation in the end. So Scott Boris has proved himself effective at getting players more money. He also seems interested in these sort of league wide issues, if only because it affects how much money he can get his clients. So why would you not want Scott Boris as the person leading your negotiations if you were a player? Is there any reason?
1: I have no idea what skills are useful for these negotiations yeah i mean i I imagine that it's different than any other negotiation and has similarities to any other negotiation mm-hmm. as well I don't know I don't know I don't know what the tone of the conversation is. I don't know how much playing the or or um using the media or using kind of public relations tactics matter. I don't know how much keeping a coalition is the key thing. It seems mm-hmm. to me that keeping a coalition might be a very significant thing or it might not be. It seems like maybe having a relationship with your, the other person in the negotiation might be very important and it might not be. I honestly have no idea.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he obviously has a lot of experience with negotiation. That's what he does. And you're right. It might be different. You'd think there'd be a lot of overlap in that he is always representing a player and trying to get the player the best deal and talking to teams. In this case, he would be talking to essentially all teams at the same time represented by whoever is negotiating for the league. So maybe that's a little bit different.
1: Well, and also talking to all teams at the same time, while also in a way actually talking to none. This is a an instance where he is not talking to a person who... Uh, is a baseball person. He's not talking to a person who runs a team or who, you know, came up through the ranks for his, you know, either analytical or baseball background, but he's talking to another lawyer, basically. This mm-hmm. is, to some degree, the least baseball negotiation in baseball. True. Uh, and, I like, it's, it's very clear that Scott Boris is exceptional uh, at what he does, and I don't know why he's exceptional at that. I don't know if it's that he's that strong in one-on-one interactions i don't know if it's that he understands the gm's mind better than anybody else i don't know if it's that he understands team needs uh, better than anybody else or if he understands what makes a player special better than anybody else all of those things aren't necessarily applicable they might also suggest an ability to think in a negotiation in a way that is flexible and powerful and to the situation and so you could make the case maybe that he would be great doing um you know a uh, you can make the case that he would be great in negotiating. I, I think if if the answer to this is yes, he should. It would be for the same reasons that you should say that he should negotiate, you know, a fire a fire union, a fire union's negotiations with you know the city of of New York, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or that he should negotiate uh, the purchase price of drone supplies from a manufacturer in China, like that. He should just negotiate all things all the time. I don't necessarily see a gr- great overlap between what he does and the CBA, except in as much as he is a person with great gravitas in the industry, and that might matter. It might be that simply walking into a room and seeing Scott Boris across the table from you would have an effect uh, and put him in a stronger position. He's, maybe it, Maybe you see Scott Boris across the table and he's always got the big stack. So that could be. I'd be, mm-hmm. if I were the players, I'd be perfectly happy uh, if Scott Boris were negotiating for me. But I'm also, I don't know that I feel that way for any reason other than a general admiration for his ability to do things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the usual negotiation he has, he is talking to a baseball person, at least initially. And then it seems like part of his brilliance is that he is able to bypass that person who maybe can see through whatever angle he is flogging for his free agent and and you know appeal to the sensibilities of someone who is more susceptible to that argument. And maybe the same skill would help him in these negotiations. I don't I don't know. I mean he'd be dealing with a, a lawyer on the other side who's presumably just as sharp as he is, but he could also play the media game and try to appeal to the owners who are in effect, the boss of the lawyer that he's dealing with. So he could sort of try the same gambit that seems to work for him every offseason. So it seems like a lot of the skills that make him good at agenting would make him good at essentially being an agent for all players at the same time. But right, we don't know enough about the specifics of the negotiation to say whether there's something about Boris that would Backfire in principle It's an interesting idea
1: I would guess here's what I would say I would say that I would not necessarily expect him uh, To be the best person to do this The first time Uh, however If he spent if he spent a couple Of decades doing it I would imagine That he would be just as good at it As he currently is at Doing what he does that he Uh would make The terrain his he would get familiar With the terrain but there might be a learning curve That I would feel a little hesitant to gamble On
0: and presumably, if he were really good at this job, he would hurt himself as an agent in the future, maybe, because if he is the guy who can extract the most money out of owners or he can get more money than the other other agents can get, then in a sense, he might be reducing his competitive advantage if he were to go back to just being a super agent. Wait, then, uh, but if, his, he's, aren't he's, his
1: incentives perfectly aligned, though? He wants to get more money for the players so that he can then get more of that money,
0: right? But is it possible that he could get the players such a good deal that any old agent could get them plenty of money after these negotiations are completed and that no one needs to hire Scott Boris anymore because he has done such a great job with the CBA that players are just rolling in money (laughs) and there's no difference between Scott Boris, the agent, and other agents? That seems unlikely to me. (laughs) okay all right tom says with mlb teams hiring guys away from websites for a while now i was wondering has there ever been an instance where a researcher found out a piece of information about a certain team or player and then leveraged that piece of information with the team before publishing if not can you envision a scenario where this could happen
1: what wait what is the question give me an example a hypothetical
0: example I guess the hypothetical advantage would be that, you know, I I don't know, like Mike Fast or someone does the framing research and finds out about it before he publishes. And then he, he goes to a team. And by the way, he obviously didn't do this. This is purely a hypothetical, but he would go to a team and say, hey, I'm about to publish this research and everyone will have it. Or I could not publish it and you could just hire me and have it all to yourself.
1: Oh, well, that seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, sure. That sounds sinister, I, <laughs> but that yeah, sounds I mean, like a not That's like just saying, well, I've found a something of value. Would uh-huh. you as a corporation like to hire me? Because mm-hmm. I would bring this thing of value with me. That's how lots of things work, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. I, this is, to my knowledge, not how it has generally worked with people who are hired from BP or wherever on the internet. It's... It's generally just that they're doing good work and a team gets in touch with them and says, We like the work you're doing and we want to have it all yourselves, and that's that. But obviously in the past, particularly when it was rare for teams to have these sort of analysts, people would send pamphlets or whatever. They would or, you know, even now, if you're interviewing at the winter meetings with a team or something and you're not someone who's on the internet, you might prepare some sort of information about that team and say, I can save you this many runs and wins by doing this thing about your team. And, and that definitely happened in the, in the past, stat people would get hired just by like sending, you know, information pamphlets to teams and saying, I've done this analysis and here's what you're overlooking about your team. And so that sort of thing definitely happened. And in the internet hiring era, I'm not aware of it happening so explicitly like this. But, but yeah, I mean, a lot of times an analyst will publish some really interesting research, whether it's Mike Fast framing stuff, or Josh Kalk, who works for the Rays, did some injury prediction stuff using PitchFX at the Hardball Times, and then got hired almost immediately after that. And so that sort of thing happens. But
1: I wonder how many things do you think have been published uh, by people who were, you know, later hired or by not people who were later hired, but that were published that a team regrets was published and wishes that they could have gotten that exclusive. Like, like for instance, I think it will go, the Mike Fast example is the best example. I could imagine that teams wish that they had had an extra year or two head start on the rest of the league when it comes to framing. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know whether it would have, given them that year or two. I don't know how close everybody else was to getting to this point anyway. Um, And like, I'm not, uh, when I say I don't know, I mean like literally, I don't know uh, whether this was a thing where Mike Fast's uh, work was exceptionally valuable for bringing it to the public or if it was exceptionally valuable because without it, the industry wouldn't have discovered it for a few years. Still, uh, if it's the latter, then you could see a team going, doggone it, I wish he had leveraged that. I wish we had hired him. We would have uh, loved to have hired him and gotten exclusivity on that. But le- in that scenario, let's say that let's say that that would have happened. That there are teams that wish they'd hired him before it was ever published, so that they could have kept a monopoly on that information. I wonder how many uh, things, how many examples of that there really are, where teams would have put great value because it's most things that uh, appear in public uh, they're they're fair they're incremental they. Uh, are maybe, they're they're revelations that would have generally been revealed fairly soon after or already were known in some front offices or could have been. Uh, And the the value of them is, you know, fairly small. Now, as we talk about all the time, fairly small value is of great value when you're looking at $7.5 million a win. But, like, definitely I think that, like, if the A's could have gotten uh, the dips research before, it was known, they would have loved that, right? That would have given them a couple years, probably. Uh-huh. Uh, so that seems like a clear one. Uh, Mike Fass will call that one a clear one. Do you think there are, in addition to those two, do you think there are 10 other articles where a team would have you know, paid big to keep them to themselves, A 1,000 such articles, one such article?
0: <laughs> I There should be probably 10 because given what teams pay analysts. I mean, some of them are paid well, but if you're just an entry-level statistical analyst, you might be making a, you know, a very modest salary. And so if you're going to use that insight to make a single move that might help you, it's probably worth just hiring the person so that you have that to yourself. I, 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 don't, I mean, I was with the Yankees. I, I wrote about this at Grantland Last year, about how I happened to start interning for the Yankees right around the time they figured out framing. And that was years before Mike Fast. And I and a couple of my coworkers were keeping close tabs on how much progress the internet was making. And like Dan Turkentoff did some early, early analysis on catcher framing. And that was like right around that time. That was years before Mike Fast. And no one said, we have to go hire Dan Turkentoff right now to keep him quiet. Eventually, the Rays hired him, but that was years later. And now he's the, the director of the R&D department for the Brewers. But again, that was years later. Reading that at the time, it was like, oh, no, I, I hope this guy doesn't figure it out. But there was never even like the possibility that, oh, we'll, we'll just hire him. And then he won't be able to figure it out. No one even brought up that possibility. So it it just didn't seem like anyway you know which is weird because if you think it's a big advantage potentially for you and it could have been then why wouldn't you try to do that but it just didn't even come up wasn't even mentioned so I don't know whether that would be the case with other teams also but yeah I mean you would you would think there there'd be ten things or something I mean even if it's just like uh, Mitchell Lichman doing UZR or something, which was a big step forward with defense or whatever. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, useful stuff that's been done on the internet that many teams at least didn't know about when it was published. So, and often you can kind of tell that someone is working on this stuff before they publish their big piece. I mean, the, the dips and BABIP stuff was like being discussed on... You know, message boards and rec sports baseball and that kind of community before the article was actually published at Baseball Prospectus. So a team, if a team had been keeping close tabs on those thinkers at the time, then it would have hired a bunch of them. But if teams were that smart, then they would have hired all the people who ended up writing for Baseball Prospectus even before they ended up writing for Baseball Prospectus. So I think teams just probably can't be bothered <laughs> to <laughs> monitor this that closely or they dismiss the possibility that uh, people will beat them to things.
1: And yet they put such a huge premium on keeping all the stuff secret once they yeah. once they have somebody like it to the point that it seems like they way over value it. Like they think that everybody is way more interested in what they're doing uh, than they probably would be. I, I keep thinking in this conversation about uh, the piece that Nate Silver wrote long ago about, kind of the how would you put this you know the the ground ball hitters against fly ball pitchers and fly ball pitchers uh-huh. fly ball hitters against ground ball pitchers and that sort of thing where there if you are a certain type of hitter then how would you put it
0: <laughs> there's a there's a batted ball platoon there advantage, you go thank you <laughs> which is smaller than the lefty righty platoon advantage but it still exists and is meaningful
1: yeah and that was kind of rediscovered years later when andrew ku discovered that the a's seemed to be using it that mm-hmm. they seemed to have either revived this notion or discovered it anew on their own and it seemed to be uh, at least for a period of time perhaps uh, influencing Uh, their personnel choices and that it was successful for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that just hung out for like eight years, completely (laughs) unacknowledged, unacted on. Uh, and it's not like it was hidden anywhere. It was, you know, written by Nate Silver at baseball prospectus during baseball Prospectus's kind of explosion in exposure. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, despite this, there was essentially no attempt, uh, to, or no league wide, uh, recognition of it so um, and that's not a, an insignificant finding that wasn't an insignificant finding at all it turned out to I think be quite significant mm-hmm. uh, so just because something gets out also doesn't mean that it's gonna get out yeah mm-hmm. I think if you went to a team and you know you had the uh, kind of prestige to get in front of the team like they don't think of you view as a crank or a kook but if you went to a team and and really like whispered and said, "I've got the good stuff here," you know, uh-huh. like then they, pro- I bet you could tempt them into overreacting and uh-huh. thinking we've got to keep this secret because there is something that is just incredibly seductive about thinking that you have secret information. Like there's almost nothing more inviting than being involved in a secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my guess is that yeah, uh, Mike could have leveraged that uh, information. Uh, probably beforehand maybe uh, at least in the right conversation um, mm-hmm. and uh, I honestly frankly would uh, would recommend it if you have that <laughs> yeah. information please do that
0: yeah well it's like we were talking about with Darren Wilman last Friday how often the people who end up producing this research have this impulse to share it and to be part of the community and to make other people smarter and so maybe the people who end up doing this at least, on the internet. I mean, there are many people you've never heard of and I've never heard of who have done brilliant analysis and we've never heard of them because they didn't just give it away for free. <laughs> they, they went and sold it to someone. Now, like the the article I wrote last year about AVM systems, the people from Moneyball that Paul DiPodesta was using for a while. And they had information that they thought would give everyone an advantage and they had exclusivity deals with teams and because teams wanted to keep their stuff private. So maybe it's just that people who end up writing on the internet are not the secretive type. (laughs) They are the people who wrote on the internet because they wanted to share it with a wider audience. And so the teams had to come to them to get them to keep quiet. All right. index?
1: Sure. Uh, So I was reading uh, an old annual from like 2004 uh, the other day and, uh, it made mention of a player's empty batting average, and I always loved this idea of the empty batting average, uh, which um, Baseball prospectus uh, authors uh, used to cite quite regularly, probably still do, uh, batting average that, um, you know, looks okay or looks good or looks great, uh, but it, is, uh, it has no walks or power uh, or anything else to strengthen it, and so the player might hit 300 but without contributing much in the way of offense. So, I wondered uh, who has the emptiest batting average. And so, what I did is I uh, went to the play index going back to 1988. I set my plate appearances at half of a qualifying season, so at least 251 plate appearances in a season. Uh, and I set it, uh, I set the search for anybody who's uh, on base percentage was, I think, less than I forget, like 5% higher than their batting average, I think. And then I did a second one for players whose slugging percentage was, I think, less than 10% higher than their batting average. So if you were a 300 hitter, then your on-base percentage would have to be below, you know, like 315, and your slugging percentage would have to be below, like 330, something like that. And I set both of these to be uh, the uh, 0.5th percentile. So basically uh, the, the lowest half percent of all mm-hmm. player seasons in that time. Mm-hmm. And um, so of those, uh, there were you know about 45 players each. Um, and I w- looked to see if anybody was on both of them. There were two players on both of them, but not the same season. They uh, Ray Sanchez was on each of them, but different seasons. Mm-hmm. Felix Fermin was on both of them, but also different seasons. And at this point, I started rooting... Uh, pretty hard for Felix Fermin to win this. There's going to be another step because I didn't find a season that could qualify. But I started rooting pretty hard for Felix Fermin because Felix Fermin, uh, in one of his years that he was on this list, uh, he sacrificed bunted 32 times as well, (laughs) uh, which seems like, A, an incredible number of sacrifice bunts. uh, But B, I also would love it if you had a batting average, not just such an empty batting average, but empty black ink. He has black ink for this season on his Uh offensive line, but in fact, it was all sacrifice bunts. Uh, And so I'm hoping that he will win, but I've got to raise the standards. By the way, Felix Vermeen, we'll do a sub play index here. Uh, 32 is an insane number of sacrifice bunts. Um, And it's actually the most in the American League in a season in the uh, modern era, but it is not the most in the majors. In fact, uh, the champion of the sacrifice bunt. Uh, appears to be jay bell who had 30 i think 31 year and 39 one year he he sacrificed bunted 39 times Uh in one year which is so many sacrifice bunts and so i looked at all of those sacrifice bunts using the play index um and uh, to try to find the most absurd ones and i will say first of all that that all of these came with none out, so it's not like he was sacrifice bunting with one out. I think if you if you start sacrifice bunting with one out, then you're really into, uh, you're over the edge. But these are all with none out, and they actually all are basically plausible sacrifice bunt situations. A lot of tie games, uh, down by one, ahead by one. The worst probably is, I would say the worst example of a sacrifice bunt was... On August 20th of 1990, when with John Cangelosi on second and nobody out, uh, Jay Bell bunted him to third, up by four in the fifth Mm -hmm. inning. Which feels like a weird time to bunt.
0: It does. (laughs) You
1: know, we're (laughs) up by four, it's the fifth inning. We really need to get that guy to third. (laughs) Feels feels odd to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the most extreme. Otherwise, Otherwise, it's amazing how many sacrifice bunt possibilities come up if you're a sacrifice bunter, as mm-hmm. Jay bell apparently was. Anyway, I started raising the thresholds a little bit. So I then bumped it up to uh, the bottom 1.5% of seasons for each of these. So now we're at like uh, 20% higher than batting yards for slugging and like uh, 10% for on-base percentage. Uh, and now I've got a bunch of guys who are on both with the same season Uh, Five in fact Ray Sanchez Who uh, appears on one of these lists Mm -hmm. uh, A total of eight times (laughs) Uh, But on both of them only once um, Uh In 2001 Alex Sanchez Who has the same (laughs) last name as Ray Sanchez Yes. Ben Revere Mm. Felix Fermin In his Mm -hmm. great Not in his sacrifice bunt season though In a different season And Alvaro Espinoza So I started, uh, well, I started walking it back, and both of the Sanchez's get knocked out, and the other three are all pretty close. I think that uh, the champion appears to be uh, Espinoza, who I got down to. I think his season was, his OBP was, it was like uh, 7% higher than his average, and slugging percentage was 17%. Sorry, 17% and 8%. And uh, the others can't match that. But I also, they're all so close that I feel like we could use qualitative measures to decide who's uh, really the best example here. Ben Revere has the best batting average of the three. He had a genuinely very good batting average. He hit like three, three oh something, three something. But Ben Revere also stole a ton of bases that year. This was 2014. And by the way, the funny thing is that what knocks Ben Revere out. Uh, where he can't go any further to match Espinoza, uh, was that he had too much power. He had too much power. (laughs) Ben Revere had too much power that year. The on-base percentage matched him, matched Uh Espinoza, but he had too much power. (laughs) (laughs) But Ben Revere also stole 49 bases and was only caught eight times. He was, in fact, a plus-nine base runner that year, which is elite. And so I'm knocking out. Ben Revere that is okay. So that leaves for mean and Espinoza. And I think you just have to go with Espinoza for a few reasons. One is that Espinoza was never, ever that good again. Like even this bad, like we're talking about a player who's really bad, but he also was never that good again. He never had a batting average that high or anything like that. And uh, he also was not fast. He only stole three bases and he was caught three times uh, and he's simply lower across the board than, uh, for me was he Espinoza ranked, uh, 39th out of 126 qualifying players. He also, he also, by the way, had a full qualifying season, which helps. Uh, yeah, he, he was 39th in the majors in batting average that year out of 126, but he was 120th in total offense. Um, he was just an awful hitter. He hit 282, 301, 332 with no home runs. And, uh, and he actually strangely struck out a fair amount of time compared to the others, too. So, sorry that this is coming as a kind of a uh, anticlimactic conclusion to the play index. But Alvaro Espinoza in 1989 had the emptiest batting average, the emptiest 282
0: batting average in history. All right. That makes perfect sense.
1: He only was hit one time. He also sacrificed, bunted 23 times. He also grounded into a lot of double plays. I took that into consideration. Mm-hmm. He, he also was intentionally walked once
0: Huh wow Alright well those were Days when people Threw more intentional walks Like for me, for me never struck out So
1: at least he had A signature skill I mean this guy never He struck out fewer times in his career He had a 10 year career And he struck out fewer times in his career Than probably 30 guys last year He struck out 147 times All mm-hmm. of last year so, he was doing something. Espinoza yeah. was was not. Espinoza just kind of managed to do a thing. I'm going to look up his intentional walk. It was in the AL, so you can't even blame it on the pitcher thing. So, Alvaro Espinoza was intentionally walked by... Oh, my gosh, Ben. Ben. Yes. He was intentionally walked by Roger Clemens. No. <laughs> who,
0: was, who was batting behind him?
1: Oh, Golly, I'm looking by Roger Clemens in 1989. <laughs> it looks like a pinch hitter was batting behind him, and Ken Phelps batting. Wow. Yeah, huh. it was it was on uh, was in the on deck circle. Uh, wow, Ken Phelps. Because Ken Phelps, the other thing is that did, no, and they left Clemens in to face Phelps, who was a left handed hitter. So you you didn't even have a platoon. Advantage here Espinosa was a right-handed hitter Clemens of course is a right-handed pitcher They intentionally walked him Wayne Tolleson was on deck And I guess huh. And Tolleson was a switch hitter Now Tolleson was very bad He was horrible But uh, he was also a switch hitter So you knew that they were at least going to have a lefty possibility But then they you had to know that Phelps was going to pinch hit And Phelps was a heck of a hitter Phelps, yeah. Phelps at that point was coming on, it was at the uh, tail end of a five year run in which he had 145 OPS plus.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, of course, the situation dictated it. There were runners on second and third with two outs, though. <laughs> with two outs, well, why would they do that? <laughs> I could see if there was nobody out, it was a 5 4 game. Clemens was already trailing. So mm-hmm. I could see if Clemens was had a one-run lead as opposed to trailing by one. And I could see if there was nobody out or one out, and you wanted to set up the double play, maybe talking yourself into it. But to do that with two outs is incredible. What maybe was are hitting
0: what, at the time? Was he, he was, hitting three fifty or something?
1: Uh, the date of this was August 21st. Yeah. And of course, as we've noted, he was a batting average guy. He was hitting yeah. 2 he was hitting 291 and a single scores in both. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter how bad he is as a hitter at that point. If, he's a, if you think he's a 291 hitter, empty or not, 291, it's a good batting average and a single scores in both. All the same, though, that's <laughs> bananas. And yeah. uh, Clemens uh, faced Ken Phelps and walked a run in. <laughs> so right. well. uh, and then he was relieved for Lee Smith. And now neither one of those guys, Phelps or Smith, is <laughs> in the Hall, the of, Hall fame of Fame.
0: <laughs> because of that. Huh. Manager of that team was Joe Morgan, but oh, not, not that Not Joe that Morgan. Joe Morgan, the different other Joe, Joe Morgan. Morgan.
1: For just a second. For just yeah, a second. Would have been the him. perfect
0: ending to that anecdote, but sadly. Different Joe Morgan. Wow. All right. I had a very quick play index from Quinn who said in 1976, Mark Fidrich. Compiled 9.6 war, that's baseball reference war, while only striking out 97 batters. Is this the single greatest strikeout to war deficit of the live ball era? I'm assuming the 24 complete games played a role in the high war. So what I just did was I looked at all the nine war seasons, and those are like all-time great seasons. There are only 51 nine war seasons since 1920. And of all of those... I looked for the player's strikeout rate compared to the league average strikeout rate or the MLB average strikeout rate in the same year. And of those 51 nine war seasons, there were only two in which the pitcher had a strikeout rate below the MLB average that year. And Mark Fidrich was the guy who was furthest below the league average. His strikeout rate was only 9.7%. In a league that struck out 12.7% of batters so He was only 77% Of the league average Strikeout rate in that year And yet he had 9.64 Wilbur Wood the knuckleballer A few years earlier is the Only other pitcher in that club Who had a below league average strikeout Rate so yeah Mark Fidrich just uh, Threw a ton of innings and Didn't allow a lot of runs so That's how you do it without striking people out. And uh, there are some, if you expand the, the club to, you know, drop it down to seven war or eight war seasons, then you start getting more of these. But Mark Friedrich is an outlier in that group of outlier seasons. All right. I'll just do one more from Chris, who says, when describing park effects, you often note that they may not be constant over time and instead it is possible that a park becomes more or less extreme. While I can understand how this happens when the park dimension is modified, like moving the outfield walls at city field, I am struggling to see how and why this would happen in other instances. Is this just statistical noise? Temporary factors that are unlikely to be predictive in the long term, like if it's a warmer than average summer in a city, maybe it will play more hitter-friendly that year? Or do parks truly become more or less hitter-friendly over time and i think the answer to this is that it is often just statistical noise and that's why people use at least three years often for park factors and even that can maybe be a little bit deceptive but there are actual things and and he's right it could just be a weird weather year but there are things other than fences that could affect it it could be uh it could be the wind patterns in the stadium if they put up a new scoreboard and that changes the way the wind swirls in there or even if you know someone puts up a big building next to the ballpark or something and that changes the wind patterns. Teams will often do wind pattern studies before they make some sort of structural change like this or it could be a change to the playing surface or there could be a change to the batter's eye, something like that. So... There are actual things, but if it's something like that, where the effect probably wouldn't be as dramatic as lowering the fences or moving them far in, then you'd probably have a hard time distinguishing between noise and real effect for a few years. But there are things that can affect it.
1: Ken Phelps, since 1970, is the 71st best hitter against right-handed pitching. In all of baseball, over over those you know, in the last almost fifty years, he's sandwiched in between Eddie Murray and Reggie Jackson
0: uh-huh. <laughs> by OPS. Huh. That's well, the
1: guy they wanted to face.
0: That is a weird one. So the nineteen eighty eight Red Sox, Joe Morgan. That Joe Morgan took over as interim manager. And the team immediately went on a huge winning streak, including a 20-game home winning streak at Fenway Park. The win streak, along with Joe's likable local persona, made for quick celebrity. And the team's turnaround was known as Morgan's Magic. But the year after, he didn't have as much success, maybe because he was intentionally walking Alvaro Espinosa to face Ken Phelps with Roger Clemens. All right, so that's it for today today. You can send us more emails for next week at podcasts at baseballperspectives.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Support the sponsor, which we used for much of the content in this episode, the play index at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And we will be back soon. Dog.